Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. It is great to be with you. Um, would you turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. All right? If you're new to the Scriptures, you'll find this near the back of your Bible in the, what we call the New Testament. It's yeah, towards the end there. After the Gospels, we come to Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians is where we're going to be. And we're actually going to take a whole morning looking at communion this morning. There's an, there's an incredible communion passage that we often say when we gather to celebrate communion— but we don't often give the whole context to talk about why is it there and what is Paul addressing. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, before we jump into that, and before, I guess while you're kind of um, turning to there, uh, it has been such a privilege this year uh, for myself to be involved with a lot of weddings. Last night we had another wedding from people in our community. I've been involved in five weddings in the last six months here, and it has been so much fun to watch these, these people, these these. Uh, young men and young women um, commit their lives to each other, but not only that, commit their lives to the Lord. What an incredible thing it is. And so I know there's parents in here whose kids are getting married or who have just gotten married. There's um, people in here who have been married recently. And I just want to encourage you, keep pursuing the Lord in everything you do. It's the most important thing that we can do as followers of Jesus. And it certainly affects our married lives and our single lives and our parenting lives and our school age lives and all these things. But in marriage, like I told the couple last night, I said, you are going to have the opportunity to display God's goodness and grace in marriage in a very unique way. People will look at your marriage and they will say, wow, that's a picture of the gospel when you're walking with the Lord. And so I encourage you, walk with the Lord is a picture of the gospel. And uh, as you jump into this, some of you are going to be marrying off your first kid, and you're doing that transition. And some of you are leaving the nest for the first time. Um, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lead not upon your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. A great passage from the book of Proverbs. Um, So with all that, we've got two more weddings uh, that I'm involved in in the next couple weeks here. Looking forward to those. And um, just pray for us, because that's a full, full schedule of great fun uh, for these families as well. Um, We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we have been in a series called I Am. This last summer, for about 12 weeks, we've studied various names of God. Um, Yahweh Sabaoth, Elohim, Yahweh, El Shaddai, El Elyon, all these names we have studied. And so if you've missed one and you want to go back and check it out, you can find those teachings available on our YouTube page. You can find them via our website. You can listen to them audio-wise in our podcast area on all your major places uh, if you would like to do that. Um, 
we are doing a standalone today. Next week, we are starting a whole new series called Band-Aids, Buckets, and a Table. It'll be a four-week series that'll be fairly foundational for where we are um, headed, where we believe God wants us to be as a church. And we're going to talk about what it means to walk with God, what it means to sit at the table. So that's all I'll say about that now, but encourage you to join us the next four weeks as we jump into that. Um, communion. All right, we're going to talk about communion. Now, uh, every faith tradition has a slightly different practice of communion. I'm not going to go into all of those today. I'm, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about what Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 11 specifically. Um, when I grew up, um, we, we grew up in a, in a church culture in which we did foot washing and communion uh, four times a year. So we celebrate communion once a month. Some churches celebrate it every week. Um, my church of origin growing up celebrated four times a year, and it combined with foot washing, which as a... Um, as an adolescent in a uh, young age boy, I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> you know, like I remember the foot washing time would come and I would go to the bathroom for a very long time and come back, right? Uh, I hate feet. They're just not my thing. And, um, but that's not everybody's experience. Uh, the first time I remember taking uh, the bread in the cup, I was sitting um, about two thirds of the way back in, in our church and, and I'm holding it, you know, cracker in one hand and cup in the other hand, and I held it too tightly, and what I ended up doing was cracking the cup. So, so like, the pastor keeps on talking and talking, not that you're used to that, you know, pastor that keeps on talking or anything like that. Um, he, he's talking, I'm cracking the cup, and I end up with grape juice in my hand. So when it comes time for, and now would you take the cup, I literally went, and I drank out of my hand, because that was all I had. Uh, it was not in the cup at all. Um, there's so many great memories from communion. One of the other memories I have uh, was years ago. Uh, this is a fine-looking group of young men and ladies from Cedarville University. I am not in this photo because I'm taking the photo. And we are in the city of Corinth in Greece. We are on a, a mission trip. Um, we were a, a brass choir. So you've got um, trumpet players and trombone players and tuba players and French horn players and all this kind of stuff. We went there to do a series of concerts at various places to share the gospel. And it's just a part of that, we did some sightseeing. So we went to the ancient city of Corinth and we gathered around with a common cup and some bread and we remembered Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. There's so many great memories going back in thinking about communion in various places. Paul is going to be addressing the city of Corinth, the people of Corinth. And Paul had spent a lot of time in Corinth. If you want to read more about Corinth later, you can go look at Acts chapter 18. But I want to kind of orient you a little bit to who Corinth is, because they're a fairly well-known city. Um, they're a capital city at one point in time of the Achaia region. Um, Paul is speaking, all right? Here's a, here's a painting of Paul from Ephesus in the late 5th or 6th century. Paul is speaking. He's writing this letter to them. He had spent a lot of time with them. He's likely in Ephesus when he's writing this letter, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And he's writing to address certain issues that are going on in the church there. Communion is one of them. And he's writing to a people who live here, all right? This is a picture of the ancient city of Corinth. You can see that big hill in the, in the background of your screen. That's called the Acro-Corinth. It, it's a place that housed 
a couple of fortresses and some temples up there. And this, all, this whole area right here is filled with a, like a main paved street, an agora, and a marketplace, a bema, or bema, which is a, a place where the ruler would judge. Here's another photo of the city of Corinth, because Corinth was known in this world because it's a port city. Port cities are very important because you can get ships with goods and you can get stuff there. Port cities also tend to have a lot of people coming and going. And one of the things that that often leads to is a whole bunch of uh, craziness that goes on. But what they would do here is in, in the first century, they had this road, and you can see the road right here. They would put ships on various carts, and they would take them from the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic Sea. I think it's about four miles long, but they engineered this thing where instead of um, going all the way around all the islands and stuff and risking that time and risking shipwreck and all this stuff, they would be able to come to Corinth and put a boat on some wheels, if you will, and take it across with some power and get it to the other side. Now, going back centuries, they tried to build various canals. They tried to build a canal like this one, but engineering couldn't do this till about the 18th century. And this is a photo I took when I was there. So I'm standing on one of the bridges, and on one side, on the far side, I'm not sure which one is which right now in this photo, um, is the GNC, and on the other side is the Adriatic Sea. So you come to, here's another photo, kind of the same thing. What they do now is, is it's just a shipping port where you can save a lot of time and a lot of money. Instead of dragging these things, they get them through this way. Corinth is known for idol worship, right? Um, Greece actually is known for idol worship. There are temples everywhere. There's temples to Zeus, there's temples to Poseidon, there's temples to a whole host of gods. Here's a photo I took, I just, I love this, this photo, I've got this in my office on a thing. And um, you can see, you know, you've got the beautiful Aegean Sea and hills and stuff, and then you can see that temple right on the outcropping up there. Here's another temple looking, I, I believe, memory is not as good as it used to be because this has been a few years. I think that temple up there is the same as this temple right here, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but another temple, there's temples everywhere in Athens, in Corinth, all these places. And then um, you just keep going and temple and temple and temple because there's a whole bunch of worship going on, but it's not the worship of God much. In fact, Paul comes to Athens after he's kind of working his way down Greece, and he says, I see that you have a statue to an unknown God, because the, the Greeks were so afraid that they would forget a God, so they'd have a statue that didn't have a, here's the God of, but Paul takes that as an opportunity to say, let me tell you about the God I serve. Um, this is a port city. It's known for pagan and promiscuous living. Um, it is um, a hard ministry for Paul. He spends significant time there, and he's helping these followers of Jesus who are new to following Jesus um, learn how to honor God in how they lived. Um, Dr. Michael Van Lanningham of the Moody Bible Commentary says it this way, if there is one single all-encompassing problem exhibited by the members of the Corinthian church discernible in this letter, it's unbridled and arrogant self-promotion. Because all of these things, whether it's idol worship, whether it's um, engaging in unholy actions of a physical kind, whether it is lying or cheating someone, all these things stem back to this idea of pride and self-promotion. 
A couple weeks ago, I actually mentioned um, that pride is a central sin from which all others flow, and it, at its core, is the inflation of self above everyone and everything else. And so, at Corinth, you have this bustling metropolis, depending on what time in history you're looking at it, uh, but there's significant idol worship. There, there's a, um, a form of games that go on. They're called the Isthmian Games. Um, the only thing that rivals the Isthmian Games at this time are the Olympic Games over in over in Athens. So you have every two years, all these athletes come and they compete to honor the god Poseidon. Uh, and they engage in all of these um, religious practices. Even, even prostitution was a religious practice of pagan worship. So you'd go, if you're a pagan person, you're not following Yahweh, you would go to the temple, and one of the things they'd encourage you to do is engage in an inappropriate relationship as part of your worship to the gods. That's how depraved Corinth is. In fact, they became to be known as a, a Corinthian, or to Corinthianize someone means that they're a person of very, very loose morals and actions. And the problem Paul faces is, how do I help these people follow Jesus in a world that is far from Jesus? Put another way, how do you follow Jesus coming from a past where you didn't follow Jesus? Now, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us come from that in different ways. So some of us have grown up in a family of origin of people, uh, moms and dads, who instilled the Word of God into us and who have instilled these godly values into us. And I am so grateful for that in my life. But I know I had to come to a point where I trusted Christ myself. I had to make that faith very personal to me. We all do. But some of us have grown up in other scenarios that have not been that way. And we had to, at one point in time, learn how to follow Jesus when we came from a past that didn't follow Jesus. And that's what we have, in part, uh, happening at Corinth as Paul addresses these new believers, these newer believers, on what it means to follow Jesus. So, with all that said, a little bit of background about Corinth, hopefully not too much for you. I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And would you put up the lights just a little bit in here so I can see and we can see our Bibles a little bit better? That'd be great. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to begin <clears throat> in verse 17. Paul writes this, Now in giving the following instructions, I do not praise you. He says, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. There must indeed be factions among you, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together, it is really not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you have to look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus, he took bread, he gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that you, when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Our Father and our King, would you give us wisdom and discernment to know how to understand and to rightly apply this passage to our lives today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So, you will notice, Paul is both um, prescriptive, he's going to give some words of counsel to the people to whom he's writing, but he's, he's giving them in a specific context. He's, he's writing about something that he has heard. We pick this up in the first couple verses that we read. He says this um, in verse 18, for to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, okay? This word for divisions is the word from which we get the word schism, all right? It's the Greek word schisma. Say that, schisma. It's kind of fun to say. Schisma. And it occurs six times in the New Testament, three times in the Gospel of John, three times in the book of 1 Corinthians. And, um, what it means is this. Um, divisions are occurring at the Lord's Supper, and schisma means uh, terror, a crack, or division because of conflicting aims or objectives, okay? So it's a, it's a terror or crack or division because of conflicting aims or objectives. Uh, it, it's a word um, that's used in the Gospel of John uh, to describe the division over who people thought Jesus was. People were divided over who he was. One people thought that his aims and objectives were this. Others thought that they were this. In 1 Corinthians, there seems to be members of the community, and we get this from chapter 1, who are saying, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos, I'm with this person, I'm with that per person, and they're, they're causing divisions by saying, I'm going to pick a side and I'm over here. And Paul's addressing that, he addresses that using the same word in chapter 1. He doesn't want there to be divisions among the Corinthian church, but he addresses it here because there's cracks and divisions and tears because there's conflicting aims and objectives when it comes to gathering to celebrate the body of Christ broken for us in the blood of Christ shed for us. There, there's two different ways people want to go, or perhaps even more than two different ways. Paul states in chapter 1, he says that Christ is not divided, rather he brings people together. In fact, he, he'll say elsewhere, if you are in Christ, all right, th th that's the phrase he uses for people who come from a Jewish background, people who come from a Gentile background, whatever your background, he says, if you are in Christ, meaning that you trust Christ's work upon the cross, dying and rising again, and believing that that's the only thing that can make you right before God, he says, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. The old person who used to walk in all these selfish-centered ways, 
is gone. The new person has come. He says in the book of 2 Corinthians, I believe is where it is. Um, but he's speaking to a culture that knew very well um, factions and divisions because the whole of the Greeks and the Roman culture is about different classes. It's about where do you belong in the social pecking order. It has to do with where do you sit? What clothing do you wear? Where do you live in the city? Where, where when you're gathered around a table, what's your seat? When I was growing up, my seat was right next to my grandpa, all right? Usually my mom or my dad was on this side. My seat was right next to my grandpa because my, my grandparents lived with us in the, in the lower level of the house. I had my seat. I knew where it was, and if my brother tried to steal my seat, I wasn't very happy about it. Um, we, we had these kind of predefined things, not because of any worth. That's just how we went as people, but that's kind of a natural thing for us. Like, we, we find our lanes, and we try to stay in there, but sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, we create these lanes that, that keep keep people out. We do this today. They did this back then. This is not a new thing. What clothing do we wear? What kind of car do we drive? Where do we work? What's our past? How much money do we have? What's our race? All these things are ways in which we begin to divide people and, and they're really secondary to what Paul says. What matters most is that you are in Christ, because what God is doing by bringing people together in Christ is he's making these distinctions even more unnecessary than they already are, and he's saying there's something bigger that ties you together, and that is Jesus. So, in the ancient period, it was all about status. Class distinctions were the normal. Um, years ago, my wife and I were in San Francisco. We were out there for a wedding, and we wanted to stop and we wanted to look at, at real estate, not because we were going to buy anything. We just enjoy that. And we actually, my, my, my father-in-law loves to look at the various real estates from around the country. So we went into this real estate broker place, just like, I don't think we even went in the door, but we went to go get like a, um, a brochure of like the available real estate. And the person comes out of the door to tell us, these homes start at $500,000. Now, I'm like 23 years old, and it's probably pretty clear. I mean, it's clear to me. I wasn't going to afford a $500,000 home. I guess that could happen. But I was, I was, we were both a little taken back. Like, we just wanted to look. That was all. Right even there, we were being um, classed. We, we were being saying, you are this, and the tone of voice was, you are less than because you do not reach this time of uh, being able to afford this. We do this all the time. They did this all the time. A according to Dr. N.T. Wright, the economic scales in the Roman world resembled this. There was a top 3%, and these were the imperial people, the, the, the elites of society, top 3%. Um, the next 17% were people of moderate surplus wealth. There are people who had plenty to live on, and even then some more, life was pretty good. That's your top 20% right there. Um, the next 25% uh, are people who are stable, but they're near subsistence level. And that basically means that, that, that they're okay, but they pretty much live on what they have every single day. You know, they have this. All right, we've got food for today. Oh, we have food for tomorrow too. That's the next 25%. So 45% has what they need and only about, you know, I guess that would be 20% has much more than they need. The remainder of the three classes below this 
are people who make up, or sorry, the two classes below this, are people who make up 55% of the Roman world at the time, and they live on just what they have for that day or even less. And these people were classed according to this. So what was so amazing in the church was the church was made up of Jews. It was made up of Gentiles. That's not a small thing. For a Jew and a Gentile to come together around a common purpose and identity is a work of God. It's a work of God uh, because of the various food laws and all these kind of things. For people who were masters or who were slaves to come together in one room and gather for a meal in the ancient period was unheard of unless the person was serving the master. So you'd have masters and you'd have slaves. You'd have people of high economic level. You'd have people of low economic level. Wherever you were at in the status of the day, what was amazing about the church is you were welcomed as who you were, a person who is in Christ, a person who is a new creation, whom the old things are gone and the new things have come. And so you have... uh, what's being walked out and in struggling to walk out too in the ancient period is how how do we not walk according to the patterns of the world where status is everything and treat people as who they are according to who God says that they're made in the image of God that they're dearly loved and they're accepted no matter where they came from no matter what they have done that's what's going on in this passage and in in the time the general upper-class Roman who didn't have anything to do to earn a living, they were the only people who were considered fully human and civilized. Think about that. You've got most of your population whom are looked upon by society as not fully human and not fully civilized, except in the church and except around the table. So, Welcome to a Roman-style house. Uh, this is a picture uh, modeling a, uh, a wealthy Roman house from the first century AD. And you'll see a couple different rooms. You'll see like the kitchen and bedroom and stuff. You'll see the Perry-style garden. You've got an, a general purpose room. You have an atrium on your top left, left hand. That's where people would begin to gather. And then you would have in the lower right hand of your screen a triclinium. Say triclinium. Triclinium. It's just a fun word to say. Uh, triclinium is basically where the elite, it would hold about eight to nine people, where they would gather to have their meals. All right? Th- th- this is where people would, br- their servants would bring in their stuff, and they as, as free people and people of status, they would be reclined, and they would be waiting there and waiting for their food, and they would enjoy this. And here's what's going on in the ancient context. They're gathered in a home, likely of a wealthy person, because they didn't have buildings and stuff like this all the time where they would gather. They would gather in homes, and um, they would gather in these homes, and what would inevitably happen is certain people would be invited into the triclinium and other people would be shut out of it. You know, the people who didn't have to really work so much for a living because they were that wealthy, they would already be there. Some of the servants would be coming after work. Some of them would come, and they might not make it past the atrium. And Paul is basically saying, you're treating people differently according to their status. Not their God-given status, but their status according to the patterns of the world that you're walking in. You're, you're acting, he basically says, you're acting like Corinthians. You're acting like pagans. You're not affording to people the image bearer that they are in the name of God. 
One scholar puts it this way. He says, this was a common complaint in, the, in other dinner parties in the Roman world. In many cases, the seating of the guests and the distribution of the food were orchestrated in such a way to reflect the social pecking order as perceived or imposed by the host. He goes on to say, also, even a large Roman home in Corinth would have room for only a limited number of people in the dining room, in the triclinium, usually about nine who would be served by household servants so that even if all the members of the church arrived at approximately the same time, only those who were invited into the triclinium would have likely been served a full meal. He goes on to say that, there were, that they were gathered as the church of God should have been enough to remind them that they were a, co a covenant community in which each member found a place through God's gracious redemption and not through social status, achievements, or qualities. This is what's going on. And Paul's saying, there's divisions among you, and I believe it. In fact, there's factions among you, um, so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, he says, when you come together to eat, it's not really the Lord's Supper. Um, for at the meal, each one eats his own supper ahead of others. So one person is hungry while another one gets drunk. Don't you have your own houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you look down on the children of God and embarrass those who have nothing? Because remember, you have 55% of the people of the area, roughly, who have largely nothing. So you're coming together, you're enjoying a meal, and Paul's basically saying this, look, the rich people, you, you, you want to eat all that you want. You want to go ahead in this covenant community gathering, and you want to assert your status. He's like, no, don't do that. In fact, when you come together, some of you are eating so much and drinking so much that you're getting drunk, but there's people among you who go without food. He's saying when you, when you gather for the potluck, if you will, make sure everyone eats. Make sure everyone eats, because you have 55% of the society at this time who barely have enough to even live, let alone eat a square meal every day. He says, make sure everyone eats. Don't treat people one way and treat other people another way. He goes on to say, or do you look down on the church of God and embarrass those who have nothing? In other words, the poor. What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you for this. And then he says this in verse 23, he says, for I received from the Lord. Now, Paul will sometimes talk about things, and he'll say, this is, this is my custom. This is the custom I'm familiar with. In fact, he does this in regard to head coverings in the, in the words just before this. Uh, we won't look at that today. But here he's saying, here's what I received from the Lord. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And he goes back to something that Jesus taught his disciples, who taught their disciples, who taught their disciples, on the night that when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, he gave thanks. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, remembrance is a word that means a reminder of something. It's used four times in the New Testament. It's used here. It's used in Luke 22, verse 19. It's also used in Hebrews chapter 10. And when this word is used, it has to do with uh, how the remembrance is of, uh, of the sin that we have before God and how Jesus' death is the only thing to atone for this. Uh, Hebrews 10.3, you can look it up later, kind of gives that context. And, and what he's doing is he's going back to, to this gathering 
of um, Jesus just a few short years earlier, where Jesus is gathered around a Passover table with his disciples. Passover is an annual feast. We don't need to go talk about that, but it's all about redemption. And Jesus, when he comes to the third cup, because there's four cups of wine that are taken in the Passover ceremony, the third cup, he says, this is my blood. And he's not saying that this, this wine turns into blood. What he's saying is, this is a picture I want you to remember. I want this to be seared in your bones because it's not just any cup. It's the cup of redemption. He's saying, what I'm about to do for you is going to be something that's going to bring redemption to you. Why? Because Jesus' life and his death is going to cover, his sacrificial death is going to cover sin. It's going to be a once and for all covering of sin. Think back just for a moment, back to the garden. You have Adam and Eve, and then you have their two sons. You have, um, when Adam and Eve sin, God does something very, very visual. He goes out to the garden. He says, where are you? And they say, we're over here, kind of. They, they say, we're naked, because they recognized that, that something had changed after they had sinned. Something had broken between them and God, and they re recognized that they were naked, and they tried to cover themselves with various leaves. When God drives them out of the garden, he does something very, very significant. He takes animal skins, animals that he created, animals who Adam and Eve were called to steward and to guard and to care for. He takes those animals, whether it's one or two, he kills them, and he gives them the skins to cover them. And back in Genesis, he begins painting this picture, that he will continue to paint the picture all throughout the scripture, that when there's sin, it must be atoned for, because God is holy. And the only way to, to fully atone, to once for all atone for sin, is to have a perfect, spotless, blemish-free lamb. And that is Jesus. Paul is hearkening back to this thing. I want you to remember, because Jesus did something for us that leveled this whole playing field. He, he did something to make the people who were of low status in Christ, a new creation. He, he did something for people of high status who were far from him to become in Christ and a new creation, because in Christ is what matters most in the kingdom of God. So he's hearkening back on the night when Jesus was betrayed. The Lord Jesus, he took bread and he gave thanks. Very common, he gave a Jewish um, prayer of thanksgiving. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done for you. Um, the Day of Atonement, which is one of the biblical feasts and, and one of the feasts that Jewish people and Messianic Jewish people celebrate every year, is, is about to happen. It, it's within the next couple weeks here. Uh, the Jewish fall feasts are about to be in full swing. And actually, in October, we're going to have a special guest from Chosen People Ministries to talk about Messiah in the Jewish feasts. So that's October, second weekend of October, whatever date that is. Um, but on the Day of Atonement, there was a, a offering that was given, a yearly sacrifice by the high priest on behalf of the nation. This was a must-be must time in Jerusalem. And, and Paul is evoking the, these images that God had placed within the Jewish people for years, that 
there must be complete atonement to be justified before God. In other words, like I told the couple last night, there is nothing you can do to make yourself right before God. They know that already, but I was saying it for them and for the benefit of everyone around. There's one way that you come to faith and trust and have a life walking with Jesus, and that is to believe in his death and his resurrection. And not just believe, but to, to trust and to step into that relationship. But, but this is a redemption that costs God dearly because he sent his son, his only son, the one whom he loved, Jesus, to be that sacrifice. He calls us to remember he calls them to remember. He says, like, I, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And then he goes on to say, in the same way, after supper, verse 25, he also took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. You want to read about new covenant? You can go to places like Jeremiah 31. Um, there's some other ones in the, in the scriptures. This is a new covenant established in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And he says in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's talking about a, a gathering of the church, all right? The, the, this isn't an individual eating in their home. This is the gathering of the body. And they're gathering around a meal, because that's a pretty common thing. And I think it was actually a meal. I don't think they were, like, taking a small bit of juice and a little cracker. That's the way we do it in remembrance. Remembrance is very important. But I think they're gathered around with a meal. This is life and death stuff. This is community stuff. And he says, as often as you do this, he doesn't say how often to do it. But he says, as often as you do it, as you gather as a body, you gather as a people who are in Christ, and you are a new creation, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, slave, free, as often as you do this, I want you to do something, he says. I want you to proclaim. I want you to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, to the word proclaim here is a word that means to make known in public with the implication of broad dissemination. It also means to proclaim or to announce. He's basically saying every time you take the bread and you take the cup and you give thanks to God as a community, you're announcing, you're proclaiming, you're making known Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus gave his blood for us. And it's a call to walk in a new way. It, it, it's a physical action that reminds us that Jesus alone saves, but, but it also reminds us of something that Jesus taught his disciples. I won't have you turn there, but you can look there later. It's in John chapter 13, where Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, the communion. It, it says in verse 1 something like uh, that he loved his own completely. He loved them to the end. He recognizes his time to die is about there. This is about a week before Jesus gives his life on the cross. And he demonstrates something called love. Love, I defined for the couple last night in their wedding, is a decision. It's an act of the will to bring to bear all the resources God has given you and I to meet the needs of someone else without expecting anything in return. In Greek, the word love that's in use here in John 13 is the word agape. Can you say agape? Agape. It's this kind of love that gives and gives and gives and doesn't expect. It's this kind of love that says, look, I may not see anything on the back end of this. And of course, Jesus gave his life for a whole host of people who have rejected him. And a whole host of people who have received him. 
but he gave his life for them all because as John's gospel says, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his one and only son. This is an act of the will to do something for someone else. And Jesus, in engaging in this Passover meal, he gives them an example for how they are to walk. And towards the end of chapter uh, 13, he says, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, the world, he says, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What I told the couple last night, you're kind of getting a half of a, a wedding homily here as well. What I told the couple last night is that Jesus qualifies how they are supposed to love. The Jewish people had grown up knowing we are to love God and we are to love our neighbor. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Leviticus 19. But he says, as I have loved you, how is that? Holy, completely to the end, giving his life for people who were far from him. This is the kind of love he invites his people into, one another and out towards the world. In fact, that's why it's so powerful that he says, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love, agape, for one another. What's happening in 1 Corinthians is that the church does not have love for one another, They have love for themselves. They have love for their own status and the people who are in their social club. And Paul says, may it not be so. Really quickly, he says, therefore, in 27, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. What does unworthy way mean? Right? Think of the context. They're gathered They're drinking and eating in an unworthy way. And what it means in the context is they're going ahead and they're still assigning status and privilege according to what you have. He says, don't do that. Drink and eat in a worthy way. Remember Christ, what he did for you, and walk in that same way with the people a part of your Christian covenant community. That's what they're called to do, to take it in a worthy manner means, uh, I I love this quote, Um, one, one scholar writes it this way, the church in Corinth has, quote, forgotten that for Jesus the meal was about asserting the dignity of all people. Instead, they have reverted back to a pagan view of dignity where some people get better seats than others, some people get better food than others, and some people don't eat at all. He goes on to say, when you come together Uh, you're making things worse. You're simply reinforcing the values and ideals of the culture around you, and you're dressing it up in my name. And in, in other words, they've forgotten what they're actually celebrating, how Christ gave his life for us, and how we are to do that same thing. Coming down here, he says in verse 28, so a man should examine himself, man and woman there, uh, should examine themselves in this way, or should examine himself In this way, he should eat the bread and drink the cup. So what does it mean to examine yourself? It means to say, in this context, God, where am I treating people as less than who they are in your image? Where where am I asserting my pride or my position or my rightness instead of modeling what Jesus modeled, agape love? Love that says, look, it's not based upon condition. It's not based upon contract. I will love you. Why? Because Christ has loved me. He's calling them to this kind of love. So to examine ourselves then is to say, 
God, where is there this root of unlove, unbiblical love in my body, where I want to say, I really prefer them and I don't prefer them? And this happens all the time in the church, right? Like, like it, it, it happens because we're people. We're, we're, we're people. Um, here's a group of people, right? We go on a trip like this. What do we do? Of course, we gather around different things. But, but inevitably, you have different kinds of conflict. Every congregation at one point or another has conflict between a person and another person. What do you do? You examine yourself. and You say, God, where am I preferring myself in this? How do I honor my brother or my sister? How, how, how do I not make this about who they are in this world or what they've done in this world, but rather like Jesus, I have loved them to the end. I've loved them completely. I've loved them with a kind of love that goes beyond my ability. The letter of 1 John says, um, Dearly beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God, right? You and I, we can't love our spouses, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. We cannot love the way God wants us to love without God's help. It says, love comes from God. Anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love, he says, does not know God because God is love. Paul's call here is to examine ourselves and to say, God, where am I not loving people the way you want me to? And I understand for some of us, that's a, facing a really challenging idea because we're having to face what we think is right and having to lay down that sense of rightness to say, God, what does it look like to love this person? What does it look like to walk in harmony with this person? Now, Scripture says, in Romans, I believe it is, it says, as far as it is possible with you, live at peace with all people. There are going to be things that you cannot reconcile. But the question is this for the believer. Have we done everything we can to reconcile with our brothers and our sisters? Have we done everything we can to show them honor and dignity because they're people made in the image of God. Paul comes down, says, so examine yourselves in this way. In this way, you should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, he drinks judgment upon himself. And he goes into these, these words. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. So, so there's some sort of divine judgment that has come upon the Corinthian church because they've not walked in God's teaching. If we were properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. Now, discipline is something that we don't usually enjoy, um, but elsewhere, um, Scripture says that God disciplines those who are His children. It says, but we're disciplined by the Lord when we're not properly evaluating ourselves, so that we may not be condemned with the world. Paul comes down to the end here. He says, therefore, my brothers, when you come together, okay, it's all about coming together for a meal. He says, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, you should eat at your home. So when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. And I'll give other instructions. This meal is so important to Paul about how the congregation of God acts towards one another that he says, look, if you're hungry, go eat at home and then come so that when you are with the congregation, you are focused on the body. Because if you miss the body, you've missed the point. Because that's the, that's the pattern and the picture that Jesus has given for us. So I want to invite our worship team to come up. We're going to take communion this morning. Here's what I want us to do. I want you to examine yourself. 
Ask yourself, God, God, is there, are there relationships in my life that I need to go seek reconciliation? It doesn't say it here, um, but I have to think in the size of church of that time, they would have had to go seek reconciliation probably um, from the person in the next room. For some of you here today, that person may not be here, but I encourage you, before you take of the bread and the cup, Jesus says it this way, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, he says, leave your gift in front of that altar. Go be reconciled. Come offer your gift. What matters most to Jesus is not the offering that you're bringing. What matters most is that you're walking in right relationship with the people whom you're walking with. There may be some of you today here who have unresolved conflict and you can do something about it. Like, like, I'm not talking about the people who have done everything they can to live it right in peace with people. But there may be some people here who need to go to a spouse, who need to go to a family member, who need to go to a friend, and they, they need to not point out the other person's faults. They just need to say, here's where I've been wrong. Will you please forgive me? I want to be reconciled to you. I encourage you, before you take the bread and the cup, do that. If you can't do that this morning, maybe you need to just pause right now and immediately when we are done here, if the Spirit of God is prompting you that there is a, a, a thing like that in your life, you need to go make it right as far as it is possible with you. You need to seek to make that right. You need to make that phone call. You need to go over to the person's house. You need to go up to them. And you need to say, I've sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? If you need to pause and not take the cup today and take the bread today because of that, bless the Lord. Go be reconciled then come and we'd be happy to serve you communion and celebrate the body of Christ broken for you and I and the blood of Christ shed for you and I tomorrow. <laughs> Not tomorrow, tomorrow's Labor Day. I would still do it on Labor Day for you, for, for you all. We'd love to be able to model for ourselves and for our community what it means to walk in with one another because it's by this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As you examine yourself this morning, feel that freedom to go ahead, not because you're perfect, but because you're forgiven. Take the bread, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take it with joy, knowing that we did nothing to deserve this, and yet we are loved by God dearly as his children. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.